Hello again and welcome back to the Digital Sociology Podcast with me Chris Till. Uh, in today's episode I'm having a really interesting chat with Eleanor Kami uh, who is um, a researcher who's looking into um, amongst other things uh, the work of content moderators online and she offers a really interesting analysis uh, which informs a lot of her, her other work in which she suggests that we see that kind of content moderation work as well as lots of other activities online um, through the the notion of listening and she makes a really interesting comparison between the work of content moderators and that of early 20th century um, uh, telephone operators uh, so uh, this is a really, uh, really good discussion I think I have with her. Uh, there's a few sound issues to do with the recording, which we had to do via Skype, and I think maybe bits of it didn't work out too well. But um, it's, it's generally pretty clear, and I've tried to clean it up a little bit. Um, but uh, So I hope you enjoyed that. But before I pass you over to our chat, um, as ever, you can um, find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, anywhere else you normally get a podcast by searching for digital sociology. Uh, you can find my blog um, by searching for this is not a sociology dot blog. I'm on Twitter at Chris H Till, and uh, Eleanor is on Twitter at Eleanor underscore Kami, and I'll put all the links to uh, to those and to uh, some of Eleanor's work and her website. Um, on my blog and also in the podcast description. So I hope you enjoy this chat. Hi again. So uh, now I'm talking to Eleanor Kami, uh, who is a postdoc research associate in digital culture and society at the University of Liverpool. But as well, she is also a uh, journalist, a digital rights activist and, uh, and a feminist. Uh, so hi, Eleanor. Hello. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Good, Thanks good. so much for inviting me for this uh, conversation. I really like it. We said before, before the record, uh, before we you started to record, that um, I used to be a radio broadcaster. So for me, this medium of sound, which is uh, quite uh, suitable for what we're going to talk today, um, is something that's very dear to my heart. So um, thank you for the opportunity. Oh no, no, thank you for thank you for coming on. And it, yeah, it's it's great to have someone with with that kind of background. I have no real background skills or knowledge of uh, <laughs> of of, um, of this format other than what I've just sort of tried to teach myself uh, over the last kind of few months of doing the uh, or, uh, of doing the podcast. But yeah, so um, apologies if I seem uh, hopelessly amateurish. Um, but, no, uh, it's good there's to no. Anyway. Don't worry, there, you're you're not getting uh, tested on it. And I think so far, <laughs> from what from what I've heard from the previous podcast, you're doing great. So uh, okay, yeah. thanks, thanks. Um, so yeah, so we we met at a conference earlier this year, um, uh, 2019. Um, yeah, we were both in the same in the same panel actually, and I was really which um, was the best panel, if you ask me. But <laughs> well, I, I might be bribed, <laughs> but you know, no offense to anybody else who's here, no, no, no. who was from a different panel, but. Yeah, yeah, it was it was fun. I thought, and um, although the uh, the papers weren't a, 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 exactly on the same topics, uh, of course, but there, there was there was some kind of interesting analytical connections. And uh, yeah, yeah, I was very uh, I was very taken with your paper, and I've uh, you know I've since read up on some of your work, um, and I'll I'll put some links up. But in particular, a paper you've written called "The Hidden Listeners: Regulating the Line from Telephone Operators to Content Moderators." 
Yes. Which I think is in the International Journal of Communication. Uh, yes, uh, that was part this year. Yes, that was part of a special issue um, that I co-edited with uh, Aram Sinreich from American University in the U.S. Mm. And that special issue came out of a panel that we did at the Association of Internet Researchers um, conference in Kartu, Estonia in 2017. So it has quite a lot of, uh, it's been through a lot of <laughs> development and evolution. Um, and it was a pleasure to do. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I think that, that paper and I think that probably the, the special issue in general gets at, um, sort of a central part of what, as I see it, of, of what's going on in your work, which is this kind of um, uh, analytical uh, approach to understanding uh, digital um, digital culture and kind of uh, the impact of, of the digital in which you're sort of focusing on um, on listening um, as a way of understanding that rather than necessarily than the way in which uh, we've often been encouraged to think about the digital in terms of visuals. Um, and um, yeah, I just wonder if you could say something about why you, why you think that focus on listening is is important uh, for people who want to understand what what's going on uh, in the digital. Yeah, so um, I think maybe it's a good again. I, I think my background in the, the music industry. Um, so I also used to work for music labels. Um, through edit um, television channels uh, of for music. Um, so music has always been uh, a really uh, important, if not like the fabric of my life, the soundtrack of my life. Um, and so I always saw sound and how it connects between people. Uh, so not necessarily only music um, as a central way um, to think about things. Um, and I think that especially if you do your research on digital culture, but in general, in, in media, um, what I, what I uh, figured out throughout the years is that there is a, an overwhelming um, emphasis on uh, visual metaphors. And as we know, metaphors are not only there to describe things, they also do things. Mm. So I think... For me, um, and again, it's not like uh, I immediately thought about this and I wrote my paper or my research. This is this was an ongoing process uh, where I discovered that um, that the visual concepts are not helping me to understand what's happening, and especially what's happening when we're talking about uh, these kind of multi-layer. Um, media networks, um, and I'm not only talking about the digital networks, and I think this is another important aspect for me, also show longer lineage to historical aspect, um, and this is why I also give the example of um, the telephone operators. Um, so this, this I think, for me, uh, was a really important thing, and, and when I was starting to do this research, it's basically about deviant um, media behavior so it started as, as a project about spam and i i tried to link spam to noise um and then i i started to to tune in to a different kind of archive different kind of material um and what was very um apparent to me is that the visual concepts are constrained in time and space whereas sound has a much more flexible ability to move between spaces and redraw boundaries of both space and body. So this was something that I, I felt was very um, 
productive for my work. And again, uh, I know people who use visual concepts feel very attacked when I say this. So it's not like you have to put it in the drawer and then never use visual concepts ever again. I just thought that and still think that um, using different kind of metaphors and different kind of conceptualization of um, media power and media power practices can help us think in a different way about things and maybe open up um, different avenues of exploration, of understanding of what's happening. And, and it definitely happened with me, with, with my research objects. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think the, the, the paper that I previously mentioned really, um, it gets at that, uh, the analytical device of thinking about listening, but in a really kind of neat and, and kind of grounded way as well with the, the particular uh, examples you use. So in that paper, you, you kind of make a comparison between uh, sort of early 20th century telephone operators, particularly working for I think, uh, the Bell Corporation in America, and contemporary social media content moderators, again, I think yes. specifically on Facebook. Um, and so uh, you kind of make, uh, as I understand it, you make this kind of uh, comparison between what both of those people, those groups of people are doing, um, which is uh, listening, obviously in a very literal sense in that first example, yeah. um, but also in the second example, um, and the role that they play in kind of mediating content or me and, and actually it's almost integrating with the machinery. Uh, Not almost, it's actually very, so I have to say one of my main, yeah. um, and it's sort of an image that I use a lot in my, uh, when I talk about this in conferences and events, um, so uh, I'm very inspired by Ghost in the Shell, uh, and especially the character of Motoko uh, Kusanagi, um, and I, I remember when I, when I was seeing that uh, film, it's an anime film, and don't watch the other film <laughs> with Scarlett Johnson, please don't. Um, oh, no, I've, only and, seen, I've seen the other one, yeah. Yes. Do yourself a favor and skip that part. <laughs> but what I really like about her character, and the, in general, the notion of, of ghost in the shell is that it's it sort of relies on, on Japanese culture, thinking that the consciousness and sort of our individuality is related, is, is some kind of ghost, and it could sort of, it's independent of the physical body. And I think what what for me that gave an inspiration when when I was um, examining these media media workers that there are sort of these kind of ghosts, but so they're part of the machine, but they're also connecting and sort of being different kinds of spaces and times at the same time um, in order to create different things. Um, so that was a huge inspiration for me, uh, still is, um, and. Um, yes, yeah, so I make the connection, and especially I show the politics of um, these kind of uh, these different kind of infrastructure and especially interfaces that today we have that we don't really understand what's happening in the back end. And actually, the, the main politics happens in the back end of a lot of things that we don't realize in order to create this feeling of uh, real time and immediacy. Um, that was developed. And so the telephone operators show us that um, moment in time where um, these kind of notion of, of, of automation um, and, uh, and of immediacy and creating this kind of frictionless um, experience and service uh, was uh, uh, getting into shape. Um, 
And I show the link between that and the content moderators. And, and I think the main issue and the main thing that I'm trying to say there is that the way that these kind of um, interfaces are designed is to conceal a lot of the decision-making that is happening in the back end. And we can see a lot of this happening in basically everything that we engage with today. So we know a lot of the controversies um, of different kind of things that content moderators uh, delete or do not delete. Um, but we actually, we don't really um, have an understanding because we have very particular interfaces that want to make it very slick. Um, and so that we wouldn't see all these multiple layers. Yeah, that's uh, that's so interesting because, uh, and again, how you talk about that, that so I suppose actually just for, if anyone's not aware of what a telephone operator is, maybe uh, some of the kind of the uh, uh, younger people maybe have never even um, uh, heard of this if they're listening, but uh, in the early days of of uh, the telephone system, you would have to, uh, there would literally be physical, real people connecting one line to another in order to put you in touch with the person you wanted to speak to. Is, that's roughly right, is it? It is, yeah, it is correct. And the, these were usually uh, uh, at the beginning. It, this position was filled by uh, young men because the, the the media companies didn't think that women could do this job. Yeah. But then very very fast they realized that they could do it because then they can also sell the telephone um, as a desirable object, which is how they basically sell these women. Of course, you can also pay them very little, which is a very similar thing that's happening with content moderation. So yeah. there's a very there's a, a huge gender element into it that um, that women are uh, more supposedly more obedient. Uh, they can do all. And, and in those times, you have to think that it, when the, the, the telephone operators were working, women had very few options of work. So they could actually, it's not like they had a lot of different things that they could choose from. So this was actually also for them, they saw it as this kind of emancipatory um opportunity where they could actually get out of the home um, and 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 actually um, get some kind of money. Um, but for me, one of the main things, and this is related to my, my larger project, is to sort of um, peel off and sort of tune in to the multiple layers that are happening in the back end and showing um, the politics of that. So if we're thinking about, um, I have another article about um, web cookies where I uh, basically show um, how these kind of internet standards or how, how the, the digital advertising industry were lobbying both the EU legislation, but also Internet Engineering Task Force, which is an internet standards organization, to make exactly these kind of slick interfaces that we wouldn't see what's that, you know, that content moderators are at the back end and that cookies are at the back end. Um, so it's, it's an ongoing process for me to sort of um, help people to get their own listening capacities to understand what's happening uh, in the back end um, of the machines that they use every day. And um, this might be a slightly fatuous question, but uh, why do you consider that to be so important? Is it because there's actually... You know, that's where there's a lot of the kind of the control is happening or the, the, partly because there's actually people behind this that are, that are doing, uh, you know, their experiences are important. Uh, and also or also because there's a kind of there's a politics to that in terms of how that's managed, what we see um, in the way that, you know, other people have uh, written about the kind of the politics of algorithms and, and these kinds of things, which are kind of yeah. hidden, hidden, hidden behind the surface. I think that basically. Um... 
the ultimately what I show in the article, I have an article from 2017 about the standardization of web cookies. Uh, that essentially what happened with web cookies and the, the fact that um, the advertising industry wanted to conceal the way that we engage with the web. So as a side note, I'll say that um, we were supposed to engage with the web in a very different way. The digital advertising industry lobbied the IETF uh, so that we wouldn't seek because one of the one of the proposals for the cookie standard was that people would actually see what's happening to you. So if you think about all these software where you can see the amount of cookies that are plugged um, into your digital body, um, then this was supposed to be the standard. And I think that I have a lot of times that I do exercises with my students and I, I tell them to do that for like a week and then they, they come back and they're basically, they're mortified by the amount of cookies that they have with their computers. And I think this kind of, these kind of standardization processes uh, conceal uh, a lot of what's, of, 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 of basically how the web is sponsored today. And we're seeing all of the issues that we're experiencing today, misinformation, fake news, all of these things go back to the fact that in the end of the 1990s and the early 2000s, the advertising industry lobbied in order for it to be only one business model that relies on our behavior. Mm. And so all of that, to me, um, all of this concealing and sort of um, creating these kind of multi-layered um, uh, infrastructures uh, goes back to the fact of how is the web funded and how does that shape how we engage with the web and how people are left in a very little understanding of what is happening. So at the moment, in my current job, one of one of the things that I'm looking at um, uh, with uh, the people at Liverpool is around uh, the digital divide, digital inclusion, digital skills. And when you read all these things, you see that a lot of them have to do with the fact that it's not only about accessing the internet, it's actually understanding what's happening. So Dot Everyone, which is an NGO uh, in the UK, published a really great um, uh, report last, last year about um, basically that instead of thinking about digital skills, we need to actually teach people how to understand what's happening, sort of this kind of digital understanding. Mm. Who's sponsoring the internet? What's happening to you? How, how, you know, how is Google search engine makes money? How did, does it make money? So to me, all of these understanding revolved to how we actually engage with these um, technologies. And as media historians will show you, um, there is no one way of experiencing and engaging with media. So it's always a battle of how should we engage with media, right? So that that was Steve Jobs. Basically, his ultimate project was that you would engage with media in his way. And I really recommend everybody who likes uh, to show these kind of things to students. There's a really great uh, South Park episode where where they uh, basically laugh about, you know, how you press agree and how people don't read that yeah. and with Steve Jobs and everything. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I know I kind of deviated with the, the topic, but it, it all relates to because it all relates to how we engage with media, how we can critique media, how we can understand media. And with, with sound concepts, such as process listening, um, what I felt it, it allows me as a researcher is to think exactly about these multiple layers, but also 
as this ongoing process of uh, you know the collection and, and measurement and, and categorization. Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, like on that point, one of the things that you talked about that really uh, helped me to get to the uh, I think the, the, this notion of listening and how important it is 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 in the roles of, of the workers. So you you talked about I think as one of the tasks of the telephone operators um, and the content moderators is to make is to make a distinction between uh, message and noise exactly um, yeah. and that means that you know in in the way in the kind of the 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 kind of traditional way that we think about those concepts but also in that way in in the same way in which you you talk about uh, spam in in that article on cookies as being kind of noise and just 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 disruption and so um the telephone operators obviously had to tune into um um and kind of manage um, so they could um, what, what what was message, what was people talking, the, the kind of the, the kind of audio that people wanted to and needed to to, to listen to, and then just uh, I suppose static and, and 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 other things which would just be noise getting in the way of as you say that kind of smooth, slick, um, uh, immediate engagement. Yeah. How does that play out in terms of what the tasks the content moderators are doing? How, what, what is it that they're in, expected to do in order to uh, to kind of engage in that filtering process? Well, um, there have been several articles, uh, and I'm saying uh, journalistic articles, because, of course, Facebook has barely recognized the role of content moderators only the past few years. Uh, they're usually not hired by Facebook um, directly. They're usually hired by third-party companies. Um, and one of, one of the main sort of journalists that exposed this in 2014 was Adrian Chen, but then worked in The Guardian, uh, not in The Guardian, I'm sorry, The Wired. Um, and basically he showed these kind of guidelines of the kind of things that these content um, moderators uh, need to uh, erase. Um, and that could be uh, different kind of things. It could be um, violent stuff, it could be more sexual stuff. Um, so in a way, they're this kind of uh, cleansing machine that needs to, uh, so if we'll take a very contemporary example, the shooting in New Zealand, that's the yeah. kind of thing that content moderators um, need to erase. And, and that's a good thing, but unfortunately, because there is no scrutiny over the kind of things that they need to erase, we don't really know, and that really has a huge effect on how we engage with um, with people. So one of the biggest demonstrations that was about this kind of moderation and the sort of hypocrites and uh, uh, problematic thing was that, of course, female nipples were and still are erased. There's an ongoing battle about that, but um, and that because that is because in women's nip and and this is. So men's nipples are not removed, but women's nipples are removed. And that also included women who are breastfeeding and things like that. Um, and that is a very conservative way to um, manage sociality, as I argue in the, um, in the article, and sort of manage what kind of things you see and can engage with. Um, so again, I'm not, of course, I'm not saying that... Um, everything is okay and we should for example uh, see um people having sex with animals on facebook but on the other hand if we don't quite know as a community uh what is being deleted and there's no some kind of um uh proper 
uh, regulation over that. And because it happens so fast within split seconds, um, that creates um, a lot of problems on the kind of debate. So, for example, one of the things that um, different countries ask Facebook to delete different things. So I know that in, in Turkey, um, they ask uh, to delete things related to Atatürk. So it is very political. It's, it's very uh, problematic if we don't quite know what kind of things are removed, uh, deleted, including people or groups, by the way. So in Israel, I'm, I'm, I come from Israel, and there is a huge debate. There is a, uh, an activist uh, who goes against Israeli banks. And his group in, on Facebook has been constantly deleted, even though it has done nothing against Facebook policies. And it is quite well known that face, the Facebook owner uh, has like a thing against him as well. And so there's a lot of things that are happening there. And so who can be, uh, who can have voice, what kind of things can be talked about, what kind of discussions we can have in these kind of platforms um, is quite important. So that's sort of what's happening with content moderators. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a really fascinating case. And um, because what kind of, one of the things that struck me was that um, noise uh, in terms of the social media content moderation here is, um, you know, it, it's it's not it's not it's not kind of um, simply of the same uh, of the same kind of order necessarily of of um, how we might traditionally think about it because it is as you pointed out it is political it's moral and kind of normative it's like it's the things which you know the, the, the platform um, doesn't want to be getting in the way of the normal running of things. Yeah, but I just want to correct you a bit because noise has always noise has always been political and noise has always. It's always culturally and contextually related. So um, in the book that I'm writing now, um, I also show, because noise, who decides what is noise and how to measure it uh, is, is very political. Um, so what I show um, in that whole part about Bell Telephone, I have another section where I show Bell's involvement in the Noise Abatement Committee, uh, which was in 1929, and how they basically measured New York City in order to understand the city noise. Oh, and, wow. and surprisingly, the people who are considered to be noisy were people who were immigrants, people yeah. from the black communities in, in yeah. Harlem. Um, so noise has always been very political. And, and, and as I showed the link with that, with spam, it's always been um, sort of uh, a category that encapsulates uh, deviant behaviors for specific, yeah. for specific uh, companies, in this case, media companies. Uh, in uh, and so um, yeah, so I just want to emphasize noise. It's never taken for granted. There's a really uh, there's several uh, sort of sound um, scholars um, who've been talking about that for uh, uh, quite uh, some time. There is uh, Marie Thompson uh, who published her book I think a couple of years ago about noise as well, and she shows a lot about the politics. We have uh, Atai, uh, so. I just want to sort of make it very clear. Noise was never a neutral thing. And sort of this is why I show all the politics around that. But what I find quite interesting is that the kind of strategies that content moderators conduct on Facebook is not that different from the things that we see that are happening in China and what they, the kind of censorship that they're doing in, in platforms like Weibo. 
where you can't talk about uh, specific um, uh, terms or if you're talking about something political or whatever. So it is a way to not not only, I don't know if censorship is the right word, but sort of to to shape and to manage what kind of things people can talk about and what kind of things they can engage with and who can have a voice and who can't have a voice. So I'm always, it always makes me laugh that, you know, we're criticizing the East, you know, China and Russia, all those censoring everybody. You can't talk about this and that. But actually in the West, we have quite similar strategies um, that are conducted. So I think it, we should be quite critical on how we frame things and how we, we discuss them. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, thank you for that correction. Yeah, of, of course, um, that's a really important uh, point. And um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that I suppose uh, I think that I think the comparison, you know, with um, you know, with China and with other places where we, which we more um, we, we consider to be perhaps uh, uh, culturally to be more uh, aligned with that that kind of censorship. I suppose this is one of the things that you also kind of get at that these um, platforms, such as Facebook, have traditionally tried to present themselves as neutral. Uh, as neutral spaces, which uh, of course they're not, uh, and, and I suppose there's no such thing. And um, they have been engaged in this process of um, of managing this experience. I suppose I imagine, as as someone who's not terribly knowledgeable, knowledgeable on this, I imagine their main focus has been on you know, the enhancement of their social graph and the, the maximization of the, you know, the, the, the data which would be useful for profiling and, um, uh, and marketing purposes. Yes. Um, but um, I do wonder if, and this is just a, a wondering, uh, I do wonder if they, ha they are, they've almost been kind of forced to become slightly more politically uh, engaged. That may not, that may be good or bad, I'm not sure, in, in recent times because of uh, the influence of the, you know the Cambridge Analytica scandal and and, and these kinds of things and uh, as you mentioned um, very recently with the, uh, 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 the 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 shooting in New Zealand uh, again because uh, it's something was cited just um, uh, a couple of days ago uh, back to a statement a few years ago from Zuckerberg saying that he saw the future of uh, of Facebook really as being video and he foresaw that in a few years the main posts which people will be doing will be video and live streaming and this will be great because actually you know we, we you know that, that'll just be this kind of free open thing because we couldn't even keep on top of all the video people will be uploading but now of course you know we're seeing uh, as lots of people could have foreseen you know, the problems with that um um but yeah i do wonder if uh, i'm not expecting you to have an answer to this i wonder if they they are being more directly political because it's always been political but like more directly overtly political whereas maybe more directly their their their, their concerns were, uh, were 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 commercial previously in in a way i think that facebook is forced to um engage with all of these stuff about around politics. And I have to say that this is a lot thanks to tireless activists and tireless journalists who have been doing amazing work. So actually just a couple of days ago, um, Facebook published that they're doing more to protect against discrimination in housing, employment and credit advertising. And basically what they're saying is that um, advertisers can target people according to their you know, race 
or um, a social economic um, state. And this has been uh, a fight that people, journalists like Julia Angwin from ProPublica and other types of journalists have been fighting for for a really long time uh, to uncover um, Facebook's uh, wrongdoing. We have activists from the European uh, Union, such as Max Schrems, who basically annulled the safe harbor agreement, which is quite astounding. And he, he uh, founded the Europe uh, versus Facebook group. Um, so I think Facebook, it's not like they want to be part of the debate, but they kind of uh, they kind of have to at the moment, especially with all the scrutiny that they have with, uh, with the um, election. Um, yeah. First, the election and the Cambridge Analytica thing was the thing that made people um, have more attention on them, which is kind of a shame because they, I think, focusing on politics with the big P rather than politics with the, the small P is quite dangerous because we think, oh, they're, you know, it's they're meddling with politics and that's the most important thing, you know, only only messages around politics. But actually, no, because they, as I said before, for even with the, the simple example, which I don't think is simple, of, of female nipple, of how can we actually engage with people? What kind of what kind of organizations or people can have a voice, even with you know their their name policy of drag queens? Um, what kind of sexualities could could be on Facebook? Um, these things mattered, not and so it's not only about politics that happens in government, but the politics of the everyday life, um, our gender identity, how we can communicate, how we can think about ourselves, um, is very important. Um, so yeah. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that that get, again that gets back to one of one of your kind of broader points that that you make about listening. I, I, I think this is uh, in, 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 in your paper, that listening is about making decisions about what to focus on. Fantastic. Uh, yeah, exactly. So it, it's, exactly, of, it's, on, tuning, yeah. it's tuning in and out of places, but you make decisions all throughout this process. And it's exactly these decisions that uh, as a society, we we want these kind of media companies to be accountable for, and we we want to know what are the decisions that are made, especially when these kind of companies and services become so integral into uh, into our everyday life and how we experience, how we communicate between each other, but also how we get to the news and entertainment and music and and different kind of things. Um, and all throughout these years, Facebook usually said, "Oh no, you know these things are just ordered." organically. Um, I have an, a paper coming out soon uh, sort of criticizing this notion of organic, you know, these algorithms just organically order things. It happens magically and naturally, uh, where as media scholars, of course, we know that it doesn't, but we should not take it for granted that a lot of other people actually have no idea that Facebook and basically every kind of social media, even on search engine, have a very particular understanding and decision-making and how they um, sort of uh, order information and experiences for us. Yeah, I think that's right. And it's, we can only be actively engaged in making those decisions about what to focus on, uh, as you said, if we have some understanding of, of those processes, um, yeah. I think. And um you use as you briefly mentioned um, referred to this earlier, but you use this this concept of 
processed listening to describe what the, the uh, both the, the telephone operators and content moderators are doing in the way that they've, um, as we said, they've been kind of integrated into the machinery uh, that, that they're working with. Um, yeah. And um, I think this is probably something you hint at anyway, but I, I wonder to what extent, you know, that, that we're, are we all, in, would you say that we're all engaged in that process of, of, of processed listening? Um, in the way that we engage, uh, uh, are encouraged to engage with social media uh, and other online forms, in the sense that we we're all kind of ha um, our behaviours and our practices have been have been uh, influenced, maybe moulded by by our engagement with them and the ways in which they encourage us to think about what is worth uh, directing our attention towards, what we uh, how we communicate, you know. In, in, by using the kind of the, the forms that they want us to to kind of like and retweet and and share and and, and these yeah. kinds of things, are, are we all kind of have we all become integrated into um, into that machinery? Would you say? Um, I think that yes, that we're all integrated, and this is why I use feminist techno science sort of uh, approaches, where there's no binary understanding of you know we're online or offline, uh, we're one thing or the other. Um, and what they basically said is kind of more fluid um, understanding. But basically, when I use the, the term processed listening, I mainly talk about these kind of media workers um, because they have more power in kind of deciding and filtering and monitoring people. Uh, and they also can do it in different kind of and they can do it also in, in, in several and in multiple spaces, whereas as people. We also have the ability to do in multiple spaces, but we're only on the individual level still. So as part of my larger sort of um, media power framework, what I argue is that the more listening capacities you have, the more power you have. And so Facebook, for example, can listen to me um, in basically every kind of uh, technology that I'm using yeah. through, their, through their service, but also through apps. Uh, as, as a lot of uh, NGOs recently show, including Privacy International in their report from December. Um, so they have a lot of listening capacities. Advertisers, for example, who use Facebook have listening capacities that are slightly less than Facebook. And so it's sort of like a pyramid of how much can you actually listen to my behavior in different kind of spaces. Um, and the more capacities you have to listen to, to how I behave, um, the more power you have because you can create better profiles on me and other people and, and create audiences and things like that. And so people do get these kind of listening capacities, but they're very controlled um, and they're very um, uh, regulated. Because as I said before, as a person who is using the web or as a person who is using Facebook, Facebook doesn't want me to listen to my own body and to listen to what's happening to my body. And this is why it will not show me what's happening in the back end of my experience on Facebook. This is why on the web, we have to install specific kind of software to see what's happening to my body. How many cookies are actually plugged? Going back to Ghost in the Shell, how many of these kind of tentacles of cookies are plugged into my bodies and uh, from different kind of organization to understand my behaviors? So people do have listening capacities, but they're very controlled and they're very limited. Yeah, no, that's 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 um, that's really interesting. Um, so I think yeah, you're right. It is it is important to position those those roles differently. Um, and I suppose again, that's that's 
again relates back to one of your points that that's um, one of the reasons why that is hidden from us is about creating that kind of smooth interface uh, on the on the front end, um, which is what those, those those workers are. That's that is part of their task is is to uh, is to have that that kind of slick, smooth, uh, immediate seeming um, uh, experience for the user. Um, but as you say, maybe it it you know it kind of takes away some of that understanding um, that that might otherwise be possible. Exactly. And it's it's basically how the power is enacted, right? Because if I don't know that there are so many cookies plugged into my body and then and I don't understand what it can do and I don't understand that, oh, actually, it's not only uh, with Facebook, it's actually with every kind of app that I'm using. It's also with uh, different kind of uh, applications. Um, if I don't know that, then I'm 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 in a very limited position to understand how to engage with media. And so the more listening capacities you have, the more knowledge you know, and therefore the more power you have. And of course, I'm sort of referencing here vaguely um, Michel Foucault and sort of the, the axis of knowledge and power. Um, but whereas Foucault and a lot of people who use his um, uh, sort of um, panopticon um, uh, a metaphor, he also used a lot of visual um, concepts and I'm sort of developing his his conceptualization into more sound concepts. Well, I'll be I'm very interested in in reading more about that. Um, uh, so yes, um, I'll, I'll definitely be looking out for that. That sounds that sounds fascinating, and, and especially because um, there's there's a bit of a um, I've talked about this a few times before. I think on the podcast, but there's been this. Uh, development in, in a lot of areas of kind of uh, analysis of, of the digital and kind of media of, of using a lot of uh, Gilles Deleuze's concepts around control, kind of control society, r- rather than those those notions of, of discipline from Foucault. Though I, d- I think there, there is there is great value in in, in both, but um, seeing how that um, can be adapted to um, uh, to uh, to listening into audio will be really fascinating. Well, you will read about it in the book that I'm writing right now. But I have okay. to say that I'm not only focusing on the discipline part that Michel Foucault is talking about. No. Because he's talking about also about biopolitics. And I'm, I'm yeah. basically talking about all the three modes of governmentality that he's talking about um, and how that takes shape um, in media technologies who are not only digital, because, as I said before, I have also the, the Bell Telephone chapter. Um, so. Yeah. Again, for me, it's it's quite important. I feel like when we're talking about the digital and internet studies platform, everybody thinks that they invented the wheel. And a lot of researchers actually don't engage with a lot of media history that has already happened. And a lot of these kind of um, power structures that have already existed. So if we're thinking about even like a company like Bell Telephone was huge. We're thinking that Google is, is huge. But, you know, at that time, Bell was... Um, as big, um, so I think it's quite it's quite important for us to to think about these things um, and to broaden our perspective and not only think that everything started with the internet or the web and things. Yeah, like that. yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, yeah. So it's been great to talk to you. I don't want to um, uh, take up any more of your day, but um, it's been really fascinating, and I'm really looking forward to to reading. Uh, um, uh, your, your future work and and uh, and the book and um, I'll, as I said I'll put some links up on um, 
in the podcast description and on my blog to to the articles we've mentioned and and, and to you um, as well. And um, if people wanted to follow you on Twitter, uh, where could they find you? Um, so first of all, before I say that, thank you so much. It's always great oh, no to, to talk about this and sort of in a more relaxed way and letting me also drift into a bazillion um, direction. <laughs> so thanks a lot for no, no, uh, for this. Now you're giving me the itch um, to, mm -hmm. to, to, to go back to my radio day. But anyway, if you want, if, if anybody wants to follow me on Twitter, I, I don't always tweet about academic stuff. Um, so I tweet a lot about music as well. Um, it's Eleanor, E-L-I-N-O-R, um, and then Carmi, C-A-R-M-I, um, and you'll find me. Great. That's brilliant. And I'll, I'll put links out to all that stuff soon. But yes, great. It's great to talk to you. I hope, hope to catch up again soon. Um, uh, we will. I'm sure we're going to see each other in conferences and yes, then we can exactly, spam each yeah. other. <laughs> yeah, great. But, but good luck. Thank you very much. Bye. All right. Bye. So there was my chat with Eleanor. I hope you enjoyed that. As ever, very keen to get any feedback or comments on my blog. This is not a sociology.blog or on Twitter at Chris H. Till. And see you again next time.